listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning and welcome to episode 13 of Footprints on Our Hearts. Today's guest on the podcast is Kate Breen, who I first met through our local Sands group and have got to know while we've been busy digging and creating a new memorial garden, um, a baby memorial garden in our local area. And gardening is definitely a passion of Kate's and it's something that helped her get through months of maternity leave after her daughter Isabel was stillborn at full term in 2016. We have a really good discussion in this podcast about various topics, including um, donating breast milk, trying to cope with grief and support your parents through grief when you're thousands and thousands of miles apart. And Kate and her husband's decision to organise a big funeral for Isabel and invite all their family and friends. Just before we dive into the podcast, a couple of uh, timely updates, ramblings that I'm going to go on at you about. (laughs) I don't know what to call them. First up, um, this week is National Infertility Awareness Week. Although this podcast is primarily about baby loss, that often goes hand in hand with infertility. And for many of my guests, the grief they've experienced from losing their child is compounded by the grief of infertility. It's also a particularly difficult time at the moment for anyone who is due to start fertility treatment, as they no doubt know that fertility clinics are all shut due to coronavirus. Um, And that must be really heartbreaking to particularly if you're feeling like you're getting older and you're running out of time to have a baby, or even not if you've been waiting for your chance um, to get pregnant, to go through a round of IVF, just to be told that it's indefinitely postponed until you know a later date, who knows when, um, it's, it's really difficult. So a big shout out to all you infertility warriors listening this week. And also a reminder that episodes three and seven of the podcast talk specifically about infertility. So if you're new to the podcast and haven't listened to some of the back episodes and you've been affected by infertility, you might like to go back and listen to those. And my guest on next week's show, um, we also have a really good discussion about infertility and know the grief and challenges associated with that. I also wanted to mention something that's really helped me this week. If you're on Instagram you may have come across Lucy of the Rainbow Running Club and although the running club is obviously not running at the moment due to coronavirus and the inability to meet up, Lucy's been running a midweek mindfulness session every Wednesday evening via Zoom It's open to everyone to join and sometimes it's led by a yoga practitioner, sometimes it's guided meditation and I've been meaning to sign into these for the last couple of weeks um, but because I've had various other things and calls on I haven't been able to but I did join last night's session um, which was a wonderful guided meditation and it made me realise just how special and important it is just to take time out from from our day-to-day lives and really just sitting or lying on the sofa as I was with a candle and some relaxing music playing in the background was really an opportunity I think for me to just reset relax and also to let some emotions that I think have possibly been um, that I've kind of boxed away and, and pushed down for a while kind of simmer to the surface Um, And it's really hard, particularly at the moment, um, when we're, you know, we're shut inside our homes so much, we're surrounded by our family, if you live with a family, if you live alone, that has its own challenges to it. But if you do have a family, and if you have children, then it can feel quite overwhelming and like you never get any space or peace yourself. So taking this hour on a, a Wednesday evening in the middle of the week to just chill out, relax and reset, I think is so valuable. So 
if you want to join that, it's I think it's still free to join at the moment. And I will put a link to Lucy's Instagram profile in the show notes so you can check that out. And finally, you're probably aware that it's a really difficult time for a lot of charities right now. Um, a lot of charities are struggling, particularly because events, including paid events and fundraising events such as the London Marathon, which often account for a significant amount of charities' income, have been cancelled. Um, you know, spring and summer is when a lot of these kind of big outdoor challenges take place. And charities, you know, can get thousands and thousands of pounds from people who are raising money for them. Um, so there's lots of charities who are struggling, who the future looks a bit uncertain for. And many of those are small charities who offer amazing support to bereaved parents and do fantastic work to help raise awareness of baby loss. So if you're looking for something positive to do, um, please do consider supporting them in whatever way you feel is appropriate. I hope you are all surviving lockdown, perhaps getting into a bit of a routine with it. I feel like we're kind of over those initial weeks of what's going on, what's happening, and chaos, really. And although there isn't an end in sight yet, I feel like I've kind of settled into a bit more, I guess, of accepting the situation we're in and trying to make the best of it. Um, and I hope you are too. There are definitely ups and downs on the road. So if you're having a down day today, um, you are not alone. There are other people who are who are feeling similarly down out there. Okay, just a reminder that you can get in touch with me or find out more about the podcast on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts, Twitter at Sky's Footprints or on the website footprintsonourhearts.com. And if you enjoy the podcast and would be able to leave a review or a rating on your podcast app, I would hugely appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Kate, Mumta, Isabel and Bruce. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thank you for having me on. Uh, you're welcome. As listeners can probably tell from your accent, you haven't always lived in the UK. Could you tell us where you're originally from and how long you've been over here? Uh, I'm originally from Texas in the in the States, and I have lived about 20 years abroad, part of the time in France, and just over 15 years in Yorkshire. And are the rest of your family all over in the States, or are any of them over, over in England as well? Uh, my parents and my three siblings are all still um, in Texas, in Houston, or in Vibrans of. So, yeah, I'm the only one, the black, the black sheep in England. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you here. <laughs> so we're going to talk a bit about Isabel today. When did you and your husband first decide that you wanted to have children? Uh, not, well, we actually had Isabel before we got married. So, um, I was in a, a quite a long relationship previous to that and we had been unable to get pregnant. Um, and so when I was, w when we were separated and I was kind of dating again, that was a pretty key component of my, my search for my true soulmate. Um, so, you know, Jason is also the eldest of four, so he's from a big family. And so we did have that chat pretty early on. So, um, when we were, so I didn't know how long it would take us to get pregnant. Um, so we kind of thought, well, let's try and get pregnant. And if it takes a while, then we'll get married. And if it, if, you know, we get pregnant straight away, then great. And so that's what happened. We got pregnant about um, three or four months after we started trying, which was, you know, a, a, a lovely surprise at the time. Yeah. <laughs> I think Jason was quite surprised. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were very lucky and were able to get pregnant quickly and I still I can still see my husband's face when I went down and told him he was like but I didn't think it was going to happen this soon <laughs> it's like no going back now yeah very similar situation um so how did your pregnancy go um it was um very straightforward uh I did have um I had a, a couple of health niggles um had like a bad chest infection that required antibiotics and um, I had some things going on with work which weren't great, which were a bit stressful. 
Um, but it was it went fairly smoothly. Um, all the growth scans and everything were were fine. There was nothing to worry about. Um, about a week before my due date, we had a so she was born at the end of July in 2016. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it was a very hot week and I, I had a midwife appointment and I remember going to the midwife appointment and saying, you know, just yesterday she didn't move quite so much, but it was so warm. I didn't move as much either. Um, and my midwife with in Isabel's pregnancy was a local mid- midwife, but was I had saw her for every appointment more or less um, and had a good relationship with her. And she said, well, you know, why don't you, you know, you're coming to the end, you know, you should book yourself into the maternity assessment center at Airedale. Um, and go and just get it checked out just to be on the safe side. So um, I went along on a very hot day and sat in a very hot room and had the kind of um, belt put on and did the the heartbeat scan for, I don't know, it was quite a long period of time. I think it was about 40 minutes in the end. Um, and they, that came all back as normal. So um, felt reassured, went off home. And about a week later, six days after that, um, just one morning, so it was a it was a Tuesday morning, and um, Jason had just finished. He's a he's a teacher, so he had just finished his term, um, end of term, and so he was off as well. And I I just didn't feel she normally hiccuped in the morning, um, and I didn't feel her hiccuping. Um, and so I went in the garden for about half an hour and just sat in a chair, tried to be really quiet. You know, sometimes you have to like pay attention to the movements. Um, and didn't feel anything. And so went in um, to Jason and said, I think we should go into the maternity. I haven't felt any movements this morning. It's probably nothing, but let's just go and have it checked out. And this was the day before my due date. So off we went to Airedale. Jason thought I was being, a, he thought I was just being a crazy pregnant lady. Um, and then we were in the Paternity assessment center, and they did the whole rigmarole, which is very common. Of oh, this this you know machine doesn't seem to be working. And when the first heartbeat machine didn't work, I had a suspicion. And in the room was a midwife and a trainee midwife, um, and she went as white as a sheet. And I knew straight away then that there was a problem. Um, but Jason didn't, and I just sort of I was laid there on the bed and on the you know examining table, just thinking, don't freak out. Just keep d- deep breaths until you get, you know, some sort of concrete answer. Don't, you know, don't flip out. And so then another uh, consultant came in with another machine and then she said, we can't find a heartbeat. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, that was hard news to mm-hmm. hear. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone was very, um, I-, I think probably compared to some of the other podcasts I've listened to, um, I don't, <clears throat> I don't feel like there's any mistake that anyone made. And I don't think that the care that we had from the hospital um, could have been any better than it was. Like we, we had really fantastic care from really through the whole pregnancy and then up until this point. Um, so they, they let us, they kind of left the room and let us cry in each other's arms. And we went to another part of the hospital to have another scan done on a proper machine, and that confirmed everything, um, kind of formally, because it was this, it was kind of one of these kind of mobile scans. Um, and uh, they took us to the to the um, like a separate suite in Airedale Hospital um, for uh, families in that situation, and talked to us about what would happen next and. Um, a different consultant came through to see us then and a couple of bereavement midwives. And they were all really good about explaining what would happen next. Um, the injections that they would give me to kind of stop the placenta doing something. And then we would come back 48 hours later and this is where we would come, this room. And um, when the baby was born, we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. We hadn't found out. So mm-hmm. I was convinced it was a boy. <laughs> Jason was convinced <laughs> it was a girl. Jason was right. He has a 100% record <laughs> when it comes to guessing the sex of babies. And I am all, I've always been wrong. Um, so, so you know, we had lots of good information then. Um, we felt pretty numb. Um, uh, we then left the hospital kind of with some sans leaflets and some instructions to come back a couple of days later, unless I went into labor and then to come back straight away. Um, so we went home and we really didn't know what to do. Um, I was very reluctant to tell my parents because they were at their, um, I knew it would 
very much affect my mom. And they were at, they, they have a place in the mountains in Montana and they were there. So I knew that even if they wanted to get on a flight to come immediately here, they, you know, they wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so I spoke to a, a very close friend um, and she was like, she said, you need to tell your parents. She just was like, you know, if, if you, they, they'll be so hurt if you don't share that with them. So um, Jason told his parents and then I managed to phone mine in Montana and cut. So kind of in that, that 48 hour period, which seems like really terrible, it actually gave us time to kind of get our head around um, what had happened and that we wouldn't be bring, bringing a live baby home because we had the nursery ready and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we had some chats about what, it, what we thought we wanted to do. We, we didn't know, um, they had explained we would have to have a funeral. Um, you know, all these things that you just never never think about, never, never consider. And in a way it's good that no one tells you, but, um, at the same time you, you, you do feel very unprepared, even in a mm-hmm. situation like ours where I, I really felt like the communication was very, very good. So, um, we went back to the hospital and uh, again, like not everything really went according to plan, but it seemed like the, the bereavement midwives and the the doctors that we saw kind of knew what to say and do. And so there was even the, um, the induction process, uh, didn't go that smoothly. And the, the, the maternity unit had a night where they were on the verge of having to close to new women. So because my labor hadn't really started from the, Mm -hmm. um, induction medication, they actually came to us at like midnight and said, we're not going to give you the kind of pessary that we would normally give you at this time because, where we want to have someone ready to be with you through the whole process. And at the moment we've got so many other women in labor. So that gave us a chance to, um, the, the suite has like a kind of a sitting area and like a separate bedroom. So we actually got a really decent night's sleep and we could kind of hear things happening in the hallway, but it was really quite faint. Um, so we got a good night's sleep and then the next morning started the, the pessaries again. Um, and went for a walk around the hospital and, I feel like proper labor started then. Um, and as we, after we went on this, this walk around the hospital grounds, we came back and there was, there was one point where I remember having to stop a lot for the contractions and, um, Jason was like, you're having to stop like every three feet. <laughs> like you were, it, it felt like I was walking five steps, but I was walking like two steps and having to stop again. Um, so when we got back to the, to the ward, um, the midwife who was there looking after us mostly at that time, um, I, I think she took one look at me and she was like, right, this is, you know, she's in proper labor now. Um, so we walked down the hallway and we had taken a tour of that hospital. And so we knew that there was um, two water birthing suites and the big water birthing suite as we walked down the hallway was was vacant. Um, and earlier in the process, um, when they had asked us about what our birth plan was, um, I, in my head thought, well, whatever our birth plan was has gone out the window and Jason piped up and said Kate would really like a water birth. So when we were coming back down this hallway and we saw that it was vacant, Jason went and asked one of the the midwives if we could go in there next. And they said yes. And kind of behind the scenes, I didn't know that that was actually a very unusual request. And there had been quite a debate in the midwifery team about whether or not they were comfortable with that. And one midwife had said, um, you know, I think it's a brilliant idea. I'm happy to, you know, follow Kate and Jason through. So she was a midwife called Nikki, um, a Scottish lady. And so, yeah, she was she was our midwife that night. Did they say what the concerns were in terms of the water birth? Um, so um, my, my waters never broke. And I think they had some current concerns just about access, being able to see what was happening. And also birthing a full-term not live baby can be a bit difficult because normally the the babies the baby would turn in the birth canal after the head was out to get the shoulders out and that doesn't happen when it's not a live baby so um it can be a a more difficult labor sometimes there's the emotions and everything as well that's interesting actually because um I asked the same thing, or actually Sam asked the same thing for me, because we, even though we were a lot earlier on, um, we'd kind of already been to have a look around the birth centre and stuff at the hospital uh, we ended up giving birth in. And even though we weren't 
in the birth centre, we were on the labour ward when we got induced, we were in, because we were put at the kind of far end of it, because the bereavement street wasn't available, so we were on the main labour ward, but we were in a room which had a pool. Um, and Sam said, oh, well, she can she have a water bath? And similarly, the sort of midwife went, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, no one asked mm. that. So went off, and they did get permission from the um, senior midwife, I think. But I think because I was in labour overnight and I was just completely exhausted and hadn't eaten anything, just the thought of getting into water at the time was just I can't I can't do that I just need to lie on this bed <laughs> so did you end up having the water birth or going into the pool so yeah we did um so my my contractions were pretty intense then and fair and regular so they got they got it ready and as soon as I got in I had a little bit of a breather that's common that when you get in the water kind of the hot hot water change of circumstance in your body kind of can give you you know kind of a five five ten minute break when contractions kind of become less intense before they start to intensify again so um I got gas and air then and um I really seemed to enjoy blowing a lot of water (laughs) I was kind of laid in the water with the gas and air and kind of taking it out of my mouth and exhaling like splashing Jason like I didn't realize at the time but he was like completely drenched from me blowing water bubbles at him um, but it, that kind of really helped me focus on my breath. And I had done pregnancy yoga and things like that. So I, I knew that that was, that was kind of how I was going to try and cope with the, the sensations. So, um, so we were in the pool for about three hours and Isabel was born. Um, again, I wasn't sure. I thought it was a boy. I thought it was a, well, I'll come on to that. So um, her head did get stuck a little bit and I had to kind of change position in the water um, but yeah, she, she came out and the midwife kind of grabbed her be behind me and then passed her through my, le- my legs. And then I, I picked her up and was like, look, it's a boy. And then the umbilical cord moved out of the way and I was like, oh, it's a girl. <laughs> so, even up until that moment, it was, I was convinced it was a boy. Um, so yeah, um, the, our birth experience, we, we have lots and lots of nice memories from that birth experience, which I think is um, a little bit unusual from other women that I've spoken to. Uh, so, so yes, it was, I mean, it was, I I suppose that's when the kind of reality set in. Um, she was beautiful. Um, they had prepared us for what she might look like. So she did have kind of some skin on her arms that was, um, kind of deteriorating already. Um, but yeah, it was a good, a good um, positive experience, all things considered. Um, I think that's lovely that you, you know, in something that's so tragic, you still, you can still have those positive memories of her um, and meeting her. Did you spend long in the hospital with her after she was born? We, um, we stayed overnight. So the mid, uh, Nikki, the midwife, helped us. Well, she bathed her and put her put some clothes on and we just watched because we at that point at that point we we kind of just felt deflated is the wrong word but we just kind of felt yeah the enormity of it all um uh and then we put her into the cold cot and went to sleep and we talked a little bit about what we would do um the next day how long we wanted to stay and we were pretty sure that we we didn't have uh, Jason's family's from Northern Ireland. So he also didn't have his parents or siblings close by. So um, we knew that saying goodbye was going to be hard, but at the same time, we, we kind of felt like we were prolonging it if we stayed in hospital too long. And we, we both felt that we didn't want to bring her home. They, they made it clear to us there was a cold cot and we could have um, taken her home with us if we wanted to. Um, we contacted um, some close friends uh, and asked them to meet us at a park. So I, I was a bit worried about kind of the transition from the hospital and having this experience to home. Um, so they actually agreed to meet us at a, a park um, local to us with our dog that they had been looking after. And um, we all just sat in the park for a bit. And then we went home and it was a nice kind of reset moment Um, yeah a a little bit of a break because it did feel strange coming out of the hospital that you know you your world has been turned upside down 
but everything else is just continuing as normal. It's just like a normal Monday morning for everybody else. Um, but for you, it's the first first day of a, a different life, totally new reality, essentially. So, um, so yeah, that was Isabel's birth. Mm, thank you for sharing that with us. And I can't imagine how hard it must have been for your parents and also for Jason's parents, you know, both of them and your family sort of being so far away. And I'm sure all they wanted to do at that moment was just to be there and to be able to give you a hug and sort Mm. of support you in any way they could. And it must have been really hard for them to have to come to terms with that news. And then did they come over to see you after you'd returned home? Um, So Yes. So I sent, I actually sent my parents, there's a, at the time there was a, a sans leaflet on for, for grandparents. Um, so I actually sent them that by email. There was one in our kind of set of sans booklets at the time they gave you like a big plastic folder with lots of different bits of material, printed material inside. Um, and so I found online that there was a PDF version of that. And so I sent that to my parents um, and my mom said that that was really useful. That was really helpful because she didn't know what to say and, um, or how to react really. Uh, and that kind of gave them a guide of, you know, what to, what to say and do, I guess. Um, I don't know if Jason did the same with his parents. I, I suspect not, but, um, we, we had decided to have a full postmortem because we thought it was important to try and understand you know, our expectations were managed that they they only find a cause in st- for stillbirth 50% of the time. And, you know, even though Isabel was more or less full term, um, they still might not find anything. But we, we kind of thought it was important that we at least went ahead with that to get as much information as we could. And we felt that that, you know, that was important for any future pregnancies that we wanted to have. Um, and did you find anything out from the postmortem? Yes and no. Um, We found out a lot of good information about me and that I had pre-pregnancy antibodies to like all of the viruses that can cause birth defects apart from toxoplasmosis, which is a cat one, which I suppose makes sense because I'm allergic to cats and yeah. (laughs) Probably Um, unlikely you'd have that. uh, Yeah. Um, So that was good information. They thought that the size of the placenta was small in comparison to Isabel was eight pounds, one ounce. Um, so she was a, a good size and I don't know, she, that's like 80th percentile or something. And the placenta was like 24th percentile. So quite a big difference. Um, and then they, in, in the, when they looked at the tissue of the placenta, they could see infarctions, which are like microscopic scar tissue. Um, but our, our consultant was kind of quick to say, you know, we, we don't look at placentas under the microscope from normal births all the time. So we don't actually know what those mean. You know, we don't actually know what starts spontaneous labor. So maybe those do. So, but, but I suppose the infarctions plus the, the size of placenta compared to Isabel was, you know, they felt that there was some placenta not functioning properly. Um, the, that must be Bruce waking up from his nap. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I, Daddy's yeah. on hand. He's going to come get him. He's promised me. Good <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing about Isabel's or the kind of birth that was um, kind of worth noting is I I decided to donate breast milk, um, which I think was also quite unusual. But I had um, been to a, quite a few La Leche League meetings, which is a, a breastfeeding support network um, that's pretty active in West Yorkshire. And... Um, I had I had kind of had a little bit of a, of a connection with the lady who runs those meetings, so I contacted her and she gave me some advice on where I could donate my milk. There's only one hospital locally, Calderdale, which accepts uh, milk donations because you hospitals need to have a separate lab to test those samples so that if they go to a baby in the NICU unit or something like that that they've been tested that they're you know not getting anything passed on. So, um, so yes, I I donated breast milk for 12 weeks after Isabel was born, which. I think in many ways, um, the hormones, the oxytocin that you get from, from doing that and the effect that that has on your body, I think was quite beneficial. Um, and I think it helped me feel connected to being a mom, really, kind of over that most difficult part of the 
were my most difficult part of grieving, possibly. Um, and I, you know, was sensible about how much time I spent with my pump and I didn't let it turn into an obsession, I guess. Um, and I did seek out another woman um, in the La Leche League network who had a stillborn baby who also donated breast milk. And I had a call with her and kind of talked about some nuts and bolts things. And, you know, how do you go, you know, when you decide to stop, how do you go about doing that? And she had some useful advice about not letting that coincide with any other big milestones, like getting the results of the postmortem, something like that. So that was useful. Um, and I wish more women, I wish that was something that that hospitals talked about more because I think it was, it, it felt like such a waste. Like there was so many things about your baby drying in that way that just feels such a waste. So I was pleased to be able to help another family. Yeah. And I think I, I honestly, I didn't even know that was, um, that was a thing you could do. And I think it was only, Maybe a month or two, I think I was reading an article in one of the papers or something about a lady whose whose baby had died and she had um and she had donated her her breast milk pump and I was like, That's that's an amazing thing. And it's one of those things, I mean and I guess maybe they don't mention it because they feel like it might make you feel worse, or maybe it's just the practicalities of it. Something silly, like only 20% of women breastfeed after six weeks in the UK. So it's quite low uptake of breastfeeding here. So it's fairly counter culture, even. There's a lot more breastfeeding in the States than... Possibly. Although I do feel like they push breastfeeding quite a lot in the UK, just in, in terms of my experience. But I think certainly, as you say, it's a way of, um, yeah, continuing to be a mother when, you know, you didn't get to bring bring your baby home with you and I yeah I find it really interesting that it's not talked about more actually and I haven't really seen that much information about it um even kind of being in the baby loss community on Instagram and reading other people's experiences it seems to be one of those things that I guess you only find out about if you're perhaps in a particular network as you were or you you know someone who's done it or certain certain people and it's something you have to be proactive about mm. and sort of so practically I guess you express your milk and then what, keep it in the fridge and does it get collected or do you have to deliver it to the hospital? Um, I had, um, you, you deliver it to the hospital normally. Um, you can freeze it, but they would like it fresher than that. Um, but uh, breast milk, it has its own living things in it. So it's not like formula milk. It doesn't kind of have other baddies growing in it very, really, very quickly. So um, I think the rules were they wanted it to get you get it to the hospital within three days of it being pumped and at refrigerated temperature. I think breast milk is good for six days or seven days. Um, so, so yeah, there's some logistics there to consider, but um, yeah, I don't know. We we made it work. And that milk goes. Does it go probably to babies on the NICU then? Yes, I would say so most of the time um, because that's, you know, they're, they're desperate to have breast milk for, for babies. Um, it's the, the food that's designed for them. And I, I, I kind of know my, my milk is really creamy, so it's <laughs> so that's too much information for some people, but yeah, it was, it was good NICU baby food. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, before I went on the breastfeeding, the breast pumping tangent, you asked me a question. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. I can't even remember what it was. Anyway, we'll, just, <laughs> we'll move on because that was so fascinating. I had no idea that that was going to come up, but I'm, I'm really glad it does because, you know, there might be people listening to this who weren't even aware that was a thing as well. Okay. And so how were you? I mean, obviously you've come back home to a house full of baby things with no baby. How were those first few weeks and months of grief for you and your husband? And how did you respond this differently or the same to that? Um, they were hard weeks, definitely. Um, in some ways, I think they brought Jason and I a lot closer together. Um, you know, we hadn't been together that long as a couple. So this was the first sort of like major challenge, I suppose, that we had. And we reacted in different ways, but I felt kind of the ways that we re reacted differently met that when I was having a low point, he was up. And when he was low, then, then I was kind of able to meet him um, halfway, he, we had big differences of opinion on the, on the funeral. Um, 
Jason just assumed that no one would want to come. And so that's when our parents came over, actually, was for the funeral. And the postmortem took some time. So she was born at the end of July, and we had the funeral, I think it was the first weekend in September. And that was also kind of good timing because it was before Jason went back to school. And he really wanted to go back to school. You know, he didn't want to have more time out from the beginning of the school year. So both our parents came over for the funeral and we spent quite a bit of time planning that. And we, and so I, I won that argument. We invited everyone. Um, Cause I just said, you know, if we invite them and they don't want to come, that's their choice. But if they come and then with the next time we see that group of people, we don't have to explain about, Oh, our baby died because they were at the funeral. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, a lot of people, I mean, apart from my parents coming from the States, um, Jason's, one of Jason's siblings came over from Northern Ireland with his parents, but we had people from all over the country that traveled for us. And actually, um, Chris, my midwife during that pregnancy, she actually came to the funeral in her uniform, just stayed for the service and said goodbye and left. Um, and that was, that was really, that really touched me. Actually, I was, yeah. Um, and then after the funeral, we had we got together at a at a pub and that's near to the crematorium. We had a cremated. Um, we didn't. We went. We got a kind of a Moses basket basket style coffin. Don't know the little coffins just looked like yeah. I, I wanted a basket, <laughs> so we had a basket and the. Um, it, it turned out that our funeral director was female and she had actually had a stillbirth. Um, she, so she was amazing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that we struggled or that I struggled with a little bit is what we were going to put Isabel in clothes wise, mm-hmm. because w- we hadn't really bought any clothes. We had been given a lot. And because I was expecting a boy, like we didn't have a, like a christening dress or anything. So <clears throat> because I'm an artist and um, just kind of handy with handy things, sewing machine, ceramics painting kind of turn my hand to anything um i contacted a a good friend of mine from shipley who is a seamstress or well she teaches classes in in sewing and i had taken some of her classes and we had kind of become friends Um, and i asked her if she would help me sew a dress for isabel to wear so she made one and i made one the same dress and so she came over Mm -hmm. to my my house a couple of times um, and we did that together, which was really nice. And um, Isabel wore the one that I made, which was fairly imperfect. <laughs> and I kept <laughs> the beautiful professional one that, um, that Jill made. Um, and I still have that. And that's, um, you know, that's, I'm, I'm glad that was a nice bit of, definitely I um, do, do things with my hands or crafts to kind of cope with my emotions and, um, that was a positive thing to do. And uh, yeah, it was nice. It's really lovely. Mm. What what colour was her dress? Really pale pink, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. And nice that you've, I think you were maybe the first person I've spoken to, or certainly the first person I've spoken to about funerals, who um, decided to have a larger funeral and invite people. Because I think most people perhaps feel, as Jason did a bit, that, you know, well, who would who would want to come to the funeral of a baby they've never met, apart from obviously your your parents and things? Um, it must have felt really supportive to have had all your friends there. Yeah, um, it was it was really, and you know, um, people talk about when you've lost a baby that you know some of your friends draw closer and some draw further away, and I, in a lot of ways, I think that really accelerates <laughs> that. Um, process, you know, when you get an invitation to their, yeah. their baby's funeral, and whether yeah. or not you decide to go, you know, and um, yeah, we, I, I did little ribbons that had Isabel's name on. And one of my friends, I asked, she's a fairly confident person, and I was like, "Would you? I know this is a difficult job, but would you mind handing these out as people arrive?" So I really wanted everyone to have like one of the ribbons on, um, and then afterwards when we went to the to the pub and my, my mom and I had baked some cakes again. It was a crafty sort of thing to do just so that there was something for people to eat, but it didn't make sense to have like a full meal. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. Um, but when we got to the pub, you know, you could tell everyone who was there for our funeral for Isabel. So my mom really enjoyed that because she could see visually who was there with us and who was just, you know, random people on the Tuesday afternoon in the, in the pub. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was another good thing. And a lot of people keep those ribbons in their wallet. Jason has one. Oh. Yeah. My dad, I've seen my dad has his in his wallet too. So kind of a nice little thing. Um, and how did you find, cause I guess your, your parents and stuff went back. How did you find, were you able to sort of get support from them while you were grieving? Were you able to support them? Did they find their own sort of networks of support? Um, my mom definitely struggled for a very long time. Um, sometimes that was nice. She would email me or message me. Oh, I've seen a, um, I've seen this and it made me think of Isabel. Other times that made me kind of feel like she was pulling me back in a way. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, I was grateful that, you know, we kind of had that open relationship where we could WhatsApp each other anytime. And if we had a, you know, a thought about Isabel then. Um, but I think my, my dad is very pragmatic. He's very pragmatic mm-hmm. about it. He's not... <clears throat> He doesn't really wear his emotions on his sleeve, but he does wear, you know, they do come out, but then, you know, right. Okay. You know, business mode. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, One thing that we did at the funeral that was nice is we did like a bit, we had a really amazing, he, um, celebrant, uh, that helped us with organizing it. And we, we basically did like a unity candle thing where, um, my parents lighted a candle and his Jason's parents lighted a candle and then we lighted a candle for Isabel. It was like a nice kind of like kind of ceremonial thing. My mom, my mom wrote a poem. She read that. Um, so I, I suppose I, I feel like I haven't ever asked him the question, but I think the fact that we were all together for the funeral and the way we did that, I think that helped in a way with the grieving and saying goodbye process. Mm. Um, but it's definitely hard. It's definitely hard being further away. Mm-hmm. I think um, we we had Isabel cremated, and we decided quite quickly, actually, in hospital that night, that night that we spent, that we were going to have her cremated, and that we were going to uh, scatter her ashes at a, a place on the Yorkshire coast that um, Jason and I love. We actually had our first weekend away together there, um, so. We've scattered her ashes there and we go there every week, week uh, every year for her birthday. Mm-hmm. So um, going to my SANS group, we, there, there definitely is a um, problematic relationship that people have with either grave sites or um, burial grounds and cemeteries in this region. There's a lot of um, damage and... Um, Inconsiderate behavior. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I suppose in some ways that helped us know you know that kind of confirmed that we had done the right thing it didn't feel right to bury her here because neither of us you know we're not both from here and but it seemed right to scatter her ashes in a really beautiful place that we'd look forward to going to every year and it's you know it's a beautiful spot and um i usually i make make things and make little birds um and we hang them up every year and there is one remaining it's on the cliff edge so i, I kind of yeah hang them up knowing that the next year we might go back and they might an eroding cliff edge as well I think given the Yorkshire coast (laughs) (laughs) so this um when she turned three there was one remaining from the the two previous years and then um the ones that we the the new ones that we put up so that's a nice little ritual it's a ritual you know I think it's important it's memory making at the time that your baby dies but there's also memory making to be done kind of as time passes and um yeah that's and to kind of and to mark those birthdays and where she what she would have been now what age she would have been now Mm. what she'd have been doing with you on the beach or whatever you know at that age first year we went just on our own and that was the right thing and then um her second birthday we had Bruce with us and then last year we invited some friends It, it kind of felt like so we had a picnic there um kind of at the spot and we all hung up the the birds i made quite a lot of birds last year (laughs) (laughs) i wanted everyone to have one to hang up (laughs) so um so yeah that that seems to be 
a positive way of us kind of mm. processing or getting through that anniversary, which is tricky every year. Yeah. And I think you kept in touch with a lot of the people who were in your NCT group, which you've been part of sort of in the run up, obviously, um, to Isabel's birth. How, I guess, how did you find that emotionally? Because obviously you went through this group thinking you'd all be giving birth to your babies around the same time. You'd be doing play dates together. They'd be growing up together. Mm. How, and, and, and I think for a lot of people, you know, you'd almost just want to push that side of things away and, and you know, move on and f- sort of almost forget about those people, t- to put it bluntly. How did you decide that you wanted to carry on keeping in touch with them? How did it feel seeing them, meeting their babies for the first time? Uh, in the 48-hour period that we went home from hospital, I actually thought about that group a lot because there had been someone in our NCT group um, who actually gave birth at home quite early. Well, she was the first one of us to give birth and it ended up being a bit of a surprise home birth. And I just remember how all of that, how that affected all of us. It was like, crap, this is real. Like Janessa's had her baby at home (laughs) with the paramedics (laughs) arriving after the fact, like was kind of, so I I thought about them a lot and I actually contacted our NCT teacher um, and said, would she contact them with the news? Because we all knew each other's due dates and who was close to whom. And I, I just sort of thought I wouldn't, I don't know. I didn't know what the right thing was, but I didn't want to just drop off the face of, you know, mm-hmm. dro- drop out of the group and then have anyone worrying about me, I guess, or worrying about us. So she did that. She contacted them um, and let them know what had happened. And, and then a couple of them actually made a point of staying in touch with me or checking in. <laughs> And um, one of them has had had a, her her second baby. We were pregnant at roughly the same time. Um, so I've mostly found that there have been a couple occasions where I've felt a bit uncomfortable. Um, but in retrospect, I look back on that now and I think, yeah, I probably shouldn't have gone to the joint birthday party in July. That was probably going to make me <laughs> not be a good idea. I mean, I thought... You know, I went along thinking, oh, yeah, Bruce knows everyone there. He'll enjoy himself. But um, for the most part, that group has been really good to be in touch with. And it's like I can dip in and out of what would Isabel have been doing now in a way that's not kind of in a curious way, but not in a way that kind of causes me emotional harm, I guess. But equally, I can understand why some people who've lost a baby would have just said, right, all of that group of people I can't be with um one family they have twin boys actually and that mum and I have had a conversation about how kind of hugely unfair it is that she has two and I had none um so kind of just called it out but she's my main go-to person now for hand-me-down clothes Mm -hmm. for Bruce so (laughs) (laughs) handy handy. (laughs) two of everything yeah so I I think there's it wouldn't be the right thing for everyone but because they live all most of them live really local um, like within walking distance of where we are. And I just couldn't see Jason and I going to another NCT class. So it was like, this is our group. And they feel the same about us. You know, we're part of their group. So, um, and, and <clears throat> I think a, contrary to what a lot of people think, um, those are the people that remember your loss. Because because they're babies. At the same age. At uh, the same age. And it, it, it's, you know, it's real for them. Like, yeah, that could have happened to us. And I imagine those thoughts probably went through their heads, you know, when they heard when they heard your news and the midwife got in touch with them and let them know. Definitely. And I'm sure yeah. they felt it almost a lot more. I think um, it's quite an interesting, uh, sorry, I'll go off a slight tangent here, but my husband has three siblings and two of them are a bit younger well one's a lot younger and the other one is kind of nowhere near thinking about children yet but his sort of next in age his sister um is actually pregnant at the moment so they I think she felt it um Sky's loss a lot more than perhaps the others did like the others felt it in terms of 
feeling sympathy for us and, and it being a terrible thing, but she almost felt it as if it could have happened to her. And I know she's found this pregnancy quite difficult almost, I think, because of that experience and that kind of reality of it hitting home. Um, but I'm glad you were able to keep in touch with them and and continue to have that um, that bond with that group. So finally, I just want to talk a bit about gardening, because um, as well as being creative and good at other things, you're also very green fingered. <laughs> and I think, first, I think you were involved in the development of the Sunbeam Garden um, at Erdale Hospital. Uh, yes, I was, but I actually have another garden there. Oh, okay. Tell, um, tell us about all your gardens. So all, all my gardens. I've got three at the moment, um, plus my one at home, which is fairly small, to be honest. Um, so... In my maternity leave, um, I, I definitely, I knew that Jason would go back to school in September and the term September to Christmas is really intense if you're a teacher in secondary school, especially if you're a subject leader like he is. Um, so I had to come up with something to do. <laughs> I wasn't sitting at home feeling sorry for myself, which would have been very easy to do. Um, you know, I, all the rest of my friends were working. Um, my mum friends that I had found, they all had babies. I mean, I, I do have another, um, there's, a, there's another charity in Shipley called Hive that I have volunteered for for a long time, pretty much the whole time I've lived in Shipley. So that's kind of a baby-free zone. So that was that was one place I spent time, but I, I couldn't spend every day there. I mean, I probably could have in retrospect, but, you know. We, we both felt, Jason and I, that we had had really the best care that we could have had. And the consultant that we saw, the midwife, the bereavement midwives, the, the, you know, everyone, I think that's one reason why we managed to get through the grieving process. You know, when I, when we went to our first SANS meeting, there was a lot of anger in the room at health professionals and medical. And I remember both Jason and I leaving that meeting and kind of being a bit shocked by that. Like, wow, um, we don't feel that way at all. So I contacted the bereavement. Mid One of the things I noticed when I was at the hospital and in labor is there was a lot of weeding that needed to be done. The things that you focus on when you're in labor. <laughs> so, NHS standards are slipping. Yes. <laughs> Come on, guys, you need to do the weeding. And at, at Airedale Hospital, there's a lot of really, what could be really lovely courtyards in between the buildings. Um, but at that time, quite a lot of them were, were looking pretty unloved. So um, I asked the bereavement midwife if she knew of anyone in the groundskeeping team and if I could come to the hospital and volunteer and could I do some gardening and some weeding and um, deadheading. I mean, I didn't, it was just somewhere to go for a couple of hours. It was, you know, and give my time to some a group of people in a way that seemed helpful and useful. Um, so it turned out that the head gardener at Airedale, his family has been touched by stillbirth. Um, so I met him. He gave me a pair of secateurs and he gardened with me for a couple of hours and just asked me about myself and um, kind of realized that I was quite a capable gardener. So after, I don't know, maybe a month of me going once or twice a week um, to the garden and gardening, um, he asked me if I wanted to take on my own courtyard because it turned out there was a scheme within the hospital for different departments to adopt these unloved courtyards. And um, there was one at the far end of the hospital, opposite kind of side from the maternity unit in A&E that no one had, had kind of taken up and adopted. And it should be a patient access space. It's one of the ones that you should, patients and volunteer visitors should be able to go into. Um, so he took me to see that. And um, yeah, I like a challenge. It was, it's a big <laughs> space. It was full of just weeds, essentially. Was, was it like paving or like grass area or it just weeds? Just it was three fairly large raised beds. Um, there's a willow tree and a couple of bushes and the rest was dandelions, basically. It was, yeah. So a clean slate. I, it was, I mean, I felt bad for the staff at that end of the hospital because it was the most unloved looking space. <laughs> like it just, it was terrible. So I f spent that first autumn basically just digging it over, which was fairly good for my fitness, really. Um, and I found that gardening and weeding in particular, you can kind of take out a lot of frustrations on weeds and dirt and some good stabbing, digging motions you can do. Yeah. Um, 
and I, I would kind of come away from a period of gardening or digging and feel a bit lighter or feel like something that had been bothering me. I had kind of been able to think about it like on the side, not quite so head on. And then I would know the answer or it wouldn't be bothering me quite so much or, um, yeah, it was very useful. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the Steve, the head gardener there, he, he sort of said, are there any plants that you want? I'll, I'll, you know, I, I do have a budget for plants. I'll try and order you give me a list. So I sent him a list, which was a bit of a wish, wish list. And he ordered me everything on it. So a thousand, how, how many pages was it? It was like, well, <laughs> it was a thousand bulbs, tulips. Wow. I mean, I love spring flowers. Um, and because it was, it was now kind of October time, November time. Um, I was like, it would be, you know, it'd be great to plant some spring flowers and then like magic, they just come up in the spring and where I'm from in Texas, nothing like that grows. So they're kind of exotic for me. Um, so yeah, he ordered me all these bulbs and I had like a thousand bulbs to get in the ground. I had to actually enlist some help. So my mom was over, she came and helped me at Jill, my sewing friend and a couple of other friends came in and helped me plant them all. Um, and then over the last three years, I've just stolen borrowed, <laughs> bought, <Thanks>. <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of different plants because it's a big space to fill up. Um, and now there's, it, initially it was just tulips and bedding plants and now there's a lot more perennials and different, there's kind of a color theme. I, I tried to think of a planting scheme that would allow me to kind of skim off some plants from the normal plant orders from the that the hospital gets, but just kind of filter them into mine. Um, so there's one bed that's mainly red and, and orange flowers, another one that's uh, yellow and white, and then another one that's like blue and purple. So it's basically red, blue, yellow, very simple. Um, but it kind of works. And um, it, it isn't a memory garden. It's for the people and the staff of Airedale. And there's cafe tables in there and people do go in and have their lunch and use it, which is lovely. Um, but the thing that's nice about it is the passage of time. You know, it's coming up to four years old, that garden, this summer. Mm -hmm. And kind of last year, it really came into it. So, you know, I had some ideas. Underneath the willow tree was a bit of a problem area. And I had a bit of a brainwave um, about what to do there. And that made a big difference. And um, it got third place, um, Courtyard in Bloom, last year. So um, there's a couple of other uh, people who work in and around the courtyard who now um, contribute plants or go on their lunch break and do a bit of weeding and deadheading, kind of keep on top of it for me. And then I've, I've accumulated a volunteer, um, a chap called Mike, whose wife has got Parkinson's disease and she comes fairly regularly to the hospital for treatment. And he's a retired gardener. So he'll, he'll come and help me or he'll, he'll do, if I text him and ask him to do things, then he will. So and kind of through doing that, um, the Sunbeam, the bereavement midwife team had been working on a, doing a garden on the hospital grounds for a long time. And it was quite a logistical thing because they've partnered with another charity to do a copper memory tree. And um, they had to get the hospital's permission to do that and make sure that access and security was okay because obviously copper is a very desirable metal for scrap. And so you want it in a place that it's not going to get stolen or damaged. Um, so when they got round to that moving forward, um, then I kind of advised them on some of the planting scheme for that. And yeah, it's actually very near to my courtyard. It's just around the corner. So if I go and I've got some time left over, then I'll knit through to there and do some weeding and deadheading and just give it a once over. So it's mostly that that's a very different court. It's got a big, big tree and it's mostly grass and there's some flower beds. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, and I think it's the Tree of Tranquility, isn't it? I think they have some of them in Scotland um, as well, Scottish charity who started it. Um, and they have leaves with uh, babies' names engraved. Yeah, they put them on twice a year and they do a, a twice yearly, do like um, a an event in the garden. So one in the autumn and one in the July time usually on butterfly release. So yeah, I think last year was the first one of the butterfly releases they had done. Um, I, re I read a poem that someone else had written at the event. You know, when you like, basically, you're like just at the point of crying, reading it. <laughs> it was emotionally <laughs> delivered, Allie. Emotionally <laughs> delivered. Really glad yeah. there's no recordings of me doing that one. Yeah. <laughs> 
and I think it's quite special as well because Airedale isn't a huge hospital. Like it's not like um. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a fairly sizable hospital. It's got usual departments, but it's not like a really big central um, hospital. So the fact that they've got this sort of special garden, um, memorial garden is really nice. Yeah, it is really nice. Mm. The, um, the, the, they have support meetings there, which the bereavement midwives run. Um, and that's quite a nice group. And actually they have their meetings in a room that's adjacent to the garden now. So they've got some mm -hmm. permission to hold the meetings there. So I don't know. I think that's nice. And uh, let's come on to your current garden project, oh, garden <laughs> which I'm also contributing a little bit to any muscle power more than anything else. Um, and this is this is a garden which you're, you've kind of taken the lead for on behalf of the local Sands Group. So yeah. could you tell us how this whole idea and how it came about? Uh, sure. So um, I mentioned before that the sort of state in, of the um, cemeteries in kind of our area is is problematic there's a lot of um anyway problematic so I had heard a lot of people in my group kind of recount stories and have difficulty with that and it just seemed that our group needed an outdoor space um to make memories in that wasn't a cemetery um that was positive and that we could control um a lot of the sand memory gardens are on crematoria site and that just didn't seem right for us so actually when I was pregnant with Bruce um, I asked around a little bit and the the garden that I mentioned that I went the the park that we went to when we came away from hospital is called Northcliffe Park and there is quite a large allotment in that park you kind of wouldn't know they were there because they're kind of hidden away um, and I know someone who had an allotment there so I asked her about it and she said you know we do have a big community garden space, um, which is basically overgrown because everyone who's in the allotment association has an allotment, has plenty of digging to do on their own plot. Um, so she put me in touch with the main organizers of the committee, and it was just in the process of kind of becoming independent from the council. Um, so I went along to see it when I actually, when I think I was pregnant with Bruce, and it was a big space, and it was okay, it's good to know it's there, but that's going to be a project in the future. And then as time went on, kind of this subject kept coming up again and again um, in our Bradford Sands group. So um, we decided, um, we went with the chair and a couple of other core members to go and see this plot of land, which was, you know, head height weeds. It used to be an allotment, but I don't think it's been dug over for more than 20 years and agreed that it had some nice qualities and that we'd like to kind of take it on. So that's what we're doing. We're, it's still pretty much a mud patch, but we have some plans. It's a work in progress, I was going to say. I mean, it wasn't like, it's, it's a nice site in some ways, but it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like you had, we had a nice sort of flat, you know, 30 by 20 foot area to work with. It's, um, it's been quite a job, I think, just getting to where we're at in terms of, digging and clearing and yeah and I think we're kind of sort of doing things as we go as we get bits of money in or where we can get materials from it's a bit of a DIY job but um there's already some flowers in there which there's I'm very pleased about yeah. um I think when when you're grieving there's a lot to be said for talking and talking therapies but sometimes you have to do something and gardening in particular and being connected to like the circle of life I think can be quite hopeful because out of muck <laughs> comes amazing compost and out of, out of death and sadness can bring new life. And um, I, I know for, I, I, you know, I know for a fact that I'm a better parent to Bruce because of losing Isabel. I think it's focused me as a mom on what is actually important rather than kind of all the noise around parenthood about, judgment and guilt and you know I think sometimes when you've lost a child you can just sort of say do you know what all of that is bullshit and this these are the things that are important or that are important to our family and it's the same I, I think gardening and being in touch with nature teaches you that or or shows you that and I, I, I do think that's why the garden will be really well used and well loved by our group because um not just it's a place to go and work and do something productive like for you and you and Sam when you're in that period where you know your loss is fairly recent 
And then later on, it if you, you know, don't want to take your subsequent children to go to the cemetery because it's just upsetting for everyone, you can go to the Sands Garden on a birthday or on a special day and make memories there instead. And so I think it will bring a lot to the group, but it's going to probably take another two years before it's finished. So that's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's a long-term project and bits and pieces will get done as they're done. I think, yeah, I think you're completely right. It's having that kind of neutral, beautiful space that, you know, the people and the people who are caring for that space have been through the same thing. It will all, you know, it should always be well cared for um, and be a nice, a nice place to go. We are out of time. I feel like we've covered so much good stuff. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you for coming on the podcast, for sharing Isabel's story and your experiences and about gardening. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be invited. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Skies Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>